This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are going to talk about population-centered care during COVID and the impact of contradictory media messages on healthcare outcomes. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lisa McGee, who is Assistant Professor of Radiation Oncology in Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Welcome, Dr. McGee. Thank you. Dr. Meggie, while we've been working with COVID and the numbers look very daunting, I was looking at the numbers today. The world over, we have 18.8 million cases and over 708,000 deaths. And U.S. seems to have the bulk of it, about 25% of 4.7 million cases in U.S. and uh, over 156,000 deaths, which comprise 22,000. I was very interested in hearing your take on it. I heard your lectures. I would like you to explain for our audience what is the science of healthcare delivery and what are the domains of the science of healthcare delivery? The science of healthcare delivery is the third pillar of basic knowledge that a physician must learn to master, not only to approach their patient care every single day, but really allow us to participate on a much broader scale in a leadership dimension uh, within our healthcare system. So the science of healthcare delivery was designed to encompass all of those topics within medicine beyond that of basic science, as well as the practice of clinical medicine. So these are some small topics that are already being taught to our medical students, as well as at the residency level through new requirements with the ACGME. There are six main domains within the science of healthcare delivery. The first being health policy, economics, and technology the second high value care, leadership, team-based care, and then person-centered care and population-centered care. So I've been working with this curriculum for a while as a pilot program, teaching these concepts to our residents for a pilot program. And as I began working with the curriculum, the two domains that had resonated most to me were the health policy, economics, and technology domain, as well as the high value care domain. And I think that was just due to the idea that I could recognize my own deficits in this knowledge base. And, you know, as far as that high value care go, this lends itself to all of those quality improvement projects and then the health policy, economics, and technology domain that encompasses reimbursement as well as all of the policies that go along with that. And so those were definitely things that I had recognized that I had never learned during my residency training, but I had to learn quite a lot about once I came out and started practicing in the real world. As time has evolved and I continue to work with this curriculum, what I've come to recognize is that the other four domains, leadership, team-based care, population-centered care, and person-centered care really and truly are uh, perhaps even more important to really delve into so that we really can learn how to become a more well-rounded physician and by learning these concepts with intention and thinking through these healthcare delivery issues and starting to brainstorm solutions so that we can have these multi-domain solutions that can lend itself to improvement. What I'm really realizing is that if we can create this next generation of physicians 
to encompass this aspect of their education into their practice that we're really positioning ourselves to be better physician leaders. One of the domains you mentioned, which is very relevant at the present moment, is the population-centered care. Could you kind of explain to us what do we mean by population-centered care? I think in order to understand population-centered care, it's important to understand the concept of population health. The reality is we don't have one well-defined approach to this concept of what is population health. For me, it's useful to think back to the original definition of health, which the World Health Organization defined for us back in 1948, which is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So if we can extrapolate that to a population, I think what we're trying to say is that we're encompassing the health of a society or a population. And as we're transitioning that thought process to population-centered care, I think what we're trying to get at is that we are taking finite resources that must be rationed and we need to figure out as a healthcare system how best to use these rationed resources to best meet a population's needs in regards to this improvement in complete physical, mental, and social well-being. So what would be the components? What are the components of population-centered care? I think in order to have good quality population-centered care, first and foremost, this requires physician leadership. Who better to be poised to direct a care model for a population than those who actually deliver the care and understand all of those nuances. Beyond that, we need a very strong emphasis on primary care. I think it's important to use a careful data-driven environment. And then I think it's also important to consider those aspects of care that are not necessarily delivered in a healthcare setting, but those that we encounter um, outside of those four walls of a hospital. So examples would be following a healthy diet or in the COVID era, the ability to social distance, wear masks, or have appropriate hand hygiene. Well, a lot of these uh, components which you describe are so very important to COVID, to the COVID and probably we did or did not do as well in this department um, that we find sometimes that we are in a difficult situation but how do you measure? Everything has to be measured. How is leadership measured or how are some of these elements which you discussed? Emphasis on primary care, care for data-driven treatment plans and the off-the-radar disease management. What are the common measures of population-centered care? So common measures would include things like health outcomes. Examples would be mortality. That's a very easy and straightforward one to understand. Another example would be morbidity or even hospital bed use, ICU bed use, ventilator use. All of those would apply to health outcomes directly related to COVID. Another measure would be access. So the availability and the use of services to at-risk populations. And this would have everything to do with insurance status and how that impacts uh, the ability of people to access care down to even the access of testing. So we've definitely seen access to testing become a major issue throughout the COVID pandemic. 
Another consideration would be to measure healthy behaviors. So that would be choices by individuals and communities, such as mandating masks and mask wearing, social distancing and isolation, or again, the frequency of hand hygiene. Another consideration would be measuring prevention. And so by preventing infection of COVID, that's screening, so screening on a broad scale, and early intervention, meaning quarantining those high-risk individuals or those infected individuals, and then also having adequate contact tracing to identify people at risk early on. Other considerations would be measuring the impact of social environment, which in many respects also lends itself to physical environment. So social environment could include things like health literacy and attention to disparities, and then physical environment would just an example would be exposure in a crowded area, such as a hospital, a jail, or a homeless shelter. So from my perspective, as I start considering the measures of population-centered care, or in this case, as we're trying to discuss how it relates to COVID, in my own personal opinion, by looking at the outcomes and how they're measured, this now gives us a framework to work backwards with our thought process to identify smaller problems and therefore create multiple different smaller solutions that when used in combination will help us to approach this very large scale problem with multi-domain solutions. But how can we use the knowledge on the components of population-based health in understanding and preparing for a future search if it comes in the fall or the winter or in future pandemics? It looks like we didn't pay great attention if you had paid attention to some of those measures of population-centered care especially the ones towards the end you mentioned social environment and physical environment with the health literacy and where the people are staying we could have predicted this is the vulnerable population in the community and maybe they need more resources there so going forwards how do we use the knowledge of the components of uh, population health in dealing with any search in COVID or other pandemics? I think this is such a great question because like you're alluding to, the reality is we have this information at the beginning, yet as a society here in America, we've really struggled to control transmission of the virus spread. And the reality is we haven't had a large centralized wide scale approach to mitigate the spread of the virus. And so how do we use this information? I think the way that we use this information definitely varies depending on the person's um, ability to create change. Change can be small scale within your own clinic or your own hospital versus really having the capacity to make larger changes on a much broader base if you have those leadership positions. And so for most of us that are functioning in our daily lives in our own clinic, I think it's important to use these concepts so that we're better prepared for the surges in our own clinic moving forward. And, you know, that has everything to do with just having the systems in place within your own clinic to mitigate spread anything from having the uh, waiting room set up in a fashion where the chairs are, are further distance away from each other and those types of things, to having better capacity to obtain uh, PPE and those types of things. 
but really and hopefully just having this plan that we have now thought through with intent, hopefully that will allow us to better be flexible and better adapt, uh, regardless of what our capacity is to make change within this large healthcare issue that we're all experiencing right now. So I'm going to switch gears a bit now. We love being with each other. We love partying. We love to go to ball games. Uh, hence, not being together is so, so very difficult uh, for us. But what was the science behind the social distancing um, that you alluded to from current and past epidemics or pandemics? It's a great question. The reality is we have a lot of really good examples of how social distancing mitigates the spread of disease. We even have examples out in the wild. You know, for example, there are bee colonies that have the capability to have bees that can detect a pheromone emitted by larvae infected by American fowl brood. And these bees will physically remove those infective larvae from the hive. Or Jane Goodall had even documented on a chimpanzee infected with polio who was cast out of his troop. So we have those examples from nature. The other reality is we have the examples of social distancing from earlier pandemics. And in particular, we have the data from the 1918 influenza pandemic. So back a hundred years ago, as this influenza strain was beginning to circulate in the United States, the society at that time had sort of a piecemeal approach to social distancing, much like what we have today. And what I mean by that is it came down to local governments implementing social distancing measures to mitigate viral spread in their smaller communities. And so this is actually well studied in much more modern times. And you can look at the effects of social distancing based on specific cities. So that data, if you look back at it, uses Philadelphia as one of the examples of how not to do or how to poorly do social distancing versus St. Louis, Missouri, who did a very good job at, at social distancing. And so to put this in perspective, Philadelphia had first identified its case near the end of September in 1918. And about 10 days later, that city hosted a parade that about 200,000 people attended. And within several days, their infection rate spiked to about 20,000 cases. And then it was a few days after that, that Philadelphia actually started implementing social distancing measures, closing down schools, churches, theaters, and other public gatherings. If you compare that to St. Louis, their first outbreak was actually in a military barrack uh, adjacent to the city. And early efforts were designed to minimize the exposure of the general population of St. Louis to those in the military. However, when that virus did get out into the community within St. Louis, they very quickly, within a couple days, closed down movie houses, pool halls, churches, and those types of things. And so if you look at the transmission of the virus spread, Philadelphia had a very large peak and that resulted unfortunately in a very large number of deaths, whereas in St. Louis, they were able to better flatten the curve. And so this data has been reported in more recent times. There were two large articles that were reported back in 2007, so 13 years ago, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they really 
dedicated study of the social distancing measures to the influenza pandemic in 1918. And in combination, what those two manuscripts were able to demonstrate is that the key to flattening the curve was social distancing. When they compared the fatality rates, deaths were 50% lower in cities that implemented preventive measures early versus those that were late or none at all. They found that the most effective efforts were simultaneously closing multiple venues that led to large-scale gatherings, so closing schools, churches, theaters, etc. And then if you look at the curve from St. Louis, they actually started relaxing their social distancing measures early, so they were celebrating an early victory, if you will, before their infection rate got very close to zero. And what you can see is a bimodal infection distribution where they had a second peak, if you will, during their, their first initial encounter with this virus. So like I was saying, this data is actually very strong and existed and was published in our modern journals in modern times, but yet before we even had this experience with COVID. So that data was there. My hope is that now that we are becoming more aware of these things, we will be able to position science to better help us moving forward when situations like this arise. I think one of the things that you really highlighted was that because the pandemics are in the past, they were distanced and we didn't have any major pandemics. There was of course SARS and MARS going on, but that did not involve many parts of the world. And then social media and so many things, there's so much noise uh, in our media that very essential nuggets of valuable information, like just what you mentioned, gets buried and, and we don't get to know it. Now, in spite of the fact that there were these two large papers which came out, why were social distancing measures seen to be so controversial during this COVID-19 pandemic? The reality is I think this is multifactorial and there are several reasons that play together. Number one, like you're saying, there's a lot of noise. So the data that did exist was not widely known, nor was it widely advertised in the media. So we didn't really have a large knowledge base of the existing support to social distancing. I think that's one factor. Another factor is the economic implications. The reality is the transmission of the virus is directly tied to the function of our economy. And we're seeing that play out over and over as we're trying to limit and minimize the spread of the virus. What happens is we have to close down large portions of the economy. And that directly relates back to individuals who are now unemployed and have a great deal of difficulty paying their bills. I think another factor is just purely the political factor. And another factor would just be the social, emotional, and psychiatric implications of being isolated. And so with all of these factors playing together for the average person who maybe doesn't have a strong knowledge base with science, it becomes very difficult to sort through all of the different messages coming out of the media because different media outlets may be releasing information based on one small component of their bias. And it's not necessarily taking the whole picture into, into consideration. But when people are going through a really difficult time like this, 
that has severe uh, impact on their emotional capabilities as well as their financial responsibilities, people tend to cling to what it is that they want to hear. And so I think that's created a lot of controversy that perhaps didn't need to exist. With so many variables that the media has to look into, and that probably, as you mentioned, gives to all these contradictory statements, uh, what would be a kind of an advice, maybe a middle of the road advice for the media so that they don't give statements which are one way or the other? And I understand they're limited by their time. The sound bites are limited. There's so many things coming up. It's Twitter, it's Facebook, uh, it's a news agency and also newspapers. What should be the goal? How can you use population health or signs of healthcare delivery? What kind of advice can we give to the media? Say, hey, these are the aspects you should cover, uh, maybe all times that would reduce the panic among people. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. The reality is the media system within the United States is so complex. I think it would be very difficult for any one of us individually to try to control the quality of what is reported about COVID information out there in the media. Realistically, we probably need to have uh, some type of medical experts that are vetting a lot of the information that gets reported, but I don't know that we have an existing way to adequately do that right now. So again, I think this comes back to what can we as individual people do to help counteract uh, the contradictory media messaging. And again, that comes down to the roles we play. And it could even be something so small as in, you know, that patient that comes into my clinic and they're saying, Dr. McGee, is this COVID thing real? You know, just having a thought out planned response can help. And I also think that just having a list of resources, and it doesn't even have to be long, but good quality resources where you can refer these people who actually are interested in learning about it so that they can get good quality information. You did mention about uh, the 1918 pandemic, the difference between St. Louis and Philadelphia, but are we seeing the same pattern now? Could you describe the difference in the outbreak uh, of COVID-19 cases between Kentucky and Tennessee? What was so, unique about that uh, pattern? So what played out early on in the pandemic in Kentucky versus Tennessee is, a very interesting way to look at early impacts of social distancing on mitigating spread of COVID. And what's interesting is these states are obviously neighbors, they're right next to each other, but they had very uh, different approaches with their timing of their stay at home orders. So if you look back to early March, both states had very similar rates of viral transmission and similar infection uh, rates within the population. Kentucky, uh, instituted their state of emergency earlier than what Tennessee did by six days, and then also implemented their stay-at-home orders much earlier than Tennessee. So Kentucky implemented their stay-at-home orders on the 26th of March, and then the 31st of March for Tennessee. And what you saw was that there was a much larger rate of increase in infection rate in Tennessee. 
So again, early on, they were very similar, but just due to the nature of delaying their stay-at-home orders, you saw a significant increase in the spread of the virus in Tennessee. I think we've also seen the same concept play out in many other states. The converse way of looking at that would be to look at the states that did not have many measures in place for social distancing when they reopened. So one example of that would be Arizona, which is where I live, and so I've been very familiar with that. It was very interesting to see that when our stay-at-home orders were lifted in mid-May, virtually two weeks later, that's when we started to see the spike in cases, and we had rapid exponential growth in our infection rate all the way through the end of June to beginning of July. And that's when we started plateauing and the infection rate started decreasing again. And if you look at the timing of that, the decrease in our infection rate coincides to about two weeks after number one masking mandates were allowed to go into effect. And then also number two, the closure of bars, gyms, theaters, and water parks. So we're seeing the same concept play out over and over across numerous states. Yeah, so it's very much, very much active. I mean, we are seeing ebbs and flows and hopefully it's flattening a bit, but we have to see with everything that you've said, uh, Dr. McGee, what kind of recommendation would you have for our physicians to get involved in the domains of uh, the health science of healthcare delivery and population health? so that we can avoid this mixed messages. I think first and foremost, the most important thing you can do as a physician is to educate yourself. A lot of these concepts within the science of healthcare delivery are new to most of us because they weren't taught in traditional med medical education. We practice medicine within a culture where we strive for perfection on a daily basis, and we've developed this culture where we don't necessarily like to admit that we don't know something and we have that flaw. My argument though is the only way we're going to continue to improve and get better is to first and foremost acknowledge that maybe we have these deficits with our own knowledge base. Once you can acknowledge that and come to terms with that level of discomfort, only then can you really start thinking about these issues with intention so that you can educate yourself. Once you start thinking about the healthcare delivery issues, from there you can start considering multi-domain solutions. And again, those can be small scale or large scale. Hopefully by doing this process, I think the other important lesson to learn is by learning things and by figuring out how to, to solve things is that it will motivate more of our physicians in our communities to really get out there, be physician leaders and become part of the solution and not just sit back and be silent. So hopefully we'll have a, a better generation of physicians that want to really improve healthcare delivery here within the United States. Thank you, Dr. McGee. And your message today is so vital that we've got to spread out our knowledge. You are an oncologist, you're a radiation oncologist and yet you have, you're looking at proton beams and micro, micro stuff, and yet you have by habit got yourself from your comfort zone 
and mm -hmm. wanted to know the population, uh, understand the whole science of healthcare delivery, uh, which is so transformative for me. So thank you. Today we were discussing on the population-centered care during COVID and impact of the contradictory media messages on healthcare outcomes. Uh, Dr. Lisa McGee from Mayo Clinic, Arizona, gave us some excellent ideas and suggestions on how to approach this aspect of medical uh, almost uh, crisis or prevent future crisis by educating ourselves, by either being involved directly with population health in some form, or even being aware of the different tenets of uh, population health and health science care delivery. Thank you, Dr. McGee, for your time. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed Mayo Clinic podcast, uh, please subscribe. Stay healthy, stay safe. See you back very soon.